Anti-Semitism is everyone's problem. It's not just a Jewish problem. Anytime there is prejudice or stereotype or singling out of a group based on their ethnic or religious identity, there's something very wrong here. We're looking at the unraveling of the Arab-Israeli conflict, which dominated the landscape for many years. That conflict is now receding. For Zion's sake, we must not be silent. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Kufi Middle East Briefing Podcast. I am your host, co-host, I don't know, co-host, co-host to see. You're, you're one of the hosts, yeah. One of the hosts, there we go, one of. And Karina, And I'm back. your other host, Karina. Thank you, thanks. It was fun, it was fun. Yes, I'm, I feel old, but, you know. Join the club, it's fine. <laughs> I'm going to need to call the plastic surgeon you had on pretty soon. Well, you know, you should have been here last week. And <laughs> you, you could have asked any questions you wanted. But that's what I back on. Free consultation. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, it's going to be one of those shows this week. <laughs> um, so we have a great guest this week. And I, honestly, I say this every week, but this really is a great guest. And... He's super busy all the time, so the fact that he made time to speak to us was we're very grateful for. Yeah, big honor. Yes. So I guess we should probably head over to the news. All right, so we're jumping right into the news. Um, do you want to talk about positive news first or bad news first? Oh, There's a lot of options. All right, then let's go with positive. Let's let's start. Okay, let, let's start with the positive. We'll go with the bad, and then we'll try and get some more positive. How's that? Okay, you'll have to you'll have to think of something positive at the end. So, okay. I on a positive note to begin with, um, we saw that the UAE has officially opened its embassy in Tel Aviv. Um, so that's a very happy thing. That's a nice cool. fulfillment of yeah the Abraham Accords. Um, on a negative note, kind of in that same vein, though, uh, a member of the PLO, which is the Palestine Libera Liberation Organization, and Hamas released statements condemning that move um, in strong terms, as you can imagine. I, I am yeah. shocked. Yeah. Um, kind of a damn. I, I think the positive there outweighs the negative. Just literally, like. Yeah. Hamas, you know, Israel is going to sneeze and Hamas is going to release a statement condemning it. Like, that's just the way it is in the Middle East at the oh, moment. Um, yeah, like, how dare they sneeze in the Middle East and exist? Um, <laughs> but the UAE going ahead and opening their embassy, I mean, that's awesome. Like, that is a huge step and it, it shows that the Middle East is changing. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can visit sometime when you go to Israel next. That's such a good idea. I didn't even think of that. It's a good idea. Um, <laughs> Add it to your itinerary. I think it's it's kind of wild when you think about it. In the space of a few years, we have the USMC in Jerusalem. We have an embassy for the UAE in Israel. I mean, mm -hmm. and Israel has opened their embassy in the United Arab Emirates. It's a it's a wild time. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, on with the negative news, I suppose. Um, also talking about the Palestinian leadership. Um, last week, the Palestinian Authority released a list of preconditions, um, although we should probably call them demands, for restarting, uh, restarting talks with Israel. Did you see that? I did. 
Yeah. So it included some things like restricting Jewish visits to the Temple Mount, um, ending Jewish construction in Eastern Jerusalem, and allowing Palestinians to obtain Israeli citizenship through marriage to Israeli Arabs. So, so it's an interesting list. Cool. Um, interesting tactic when... Yeah, it, honestly, I, I'm always, I don't want to say confused, because I get it, because ultimately the Palestinian Authority don't really want to negotiate. And mm -hmm. it's like, you have, you're at a starting point of nothing. And then you're like, mm -hmm. okay, we want all this stuff to come and negotiate. Like, right. Right. But why? Like, you kind of, you mm -hmm. rejected every offer for peace. You kind of renege on every agreement you sign. I don't know. Like, I really wonder how much their chief negotiator is getting paid because, like, at this point, they should be paying him in Tic Tacs or something because he doesn't seem mm -hmm. very good. But again, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a strategy. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think I saw Prime Minister Bennett say something to the effect uh, to he was talking to Europe and he said, you know, we can't build with our own hands another threat. And right now, them agreeing and capitulating to some of the demands that the Palestinian leadership is making would essentially be building a threat. Right. Which I thought right. was a good way to put it. Yeah, no, it's it's. It je ultimately jeopardizes Israel's security, and ultimately it puts Israel's citizens at risk. And like any government, no government's going to be running to put their own citizens at risk, especially when Israel has been burnt so many times in the past in trying to kickstart peace negotiations and make concessions and, you know, mm -hmm. do things like that. Yeah. So, so nonetheless, um, another bit of news that I saw is that some some U.S. lawmakers uh, actually met with the president, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, and they were urging him to stop paying terrorists. Um, which well, is an wild, wild demand, you know, you know a wild idea, um, <laughs> given that we already have the Taylor Force Act, which says we shouldn't be giving U.S. aid to the Palestinians until they stop paying terrorists. So it's interesting. Yeah, that's um how'd that go? I know how it went, but <laughs> um you know, I, I don't know that, that they even commented on the result of the meeting <laughs> in what I read. <laughs> Maybe wow. it goes without saying. That's wild that we're having to go, Hey, would you mind not paying like terrorists? We wanna help you, just maybe stop paying your people to kill Israelis. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I mean, I guess it, it's an interesting juxtaposition when you see, like, the United Arab Emirates, who for years, well, you know, forever, have never recognized Israel, and now, in such a short time, those doors are open and progress is made, being made. I think they also signed an agricultural agreement in the last week. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Palestinian Authority, who don't have the best interests of their people at heart, and really? are more focused on paying terrorists than actually making progress and having peace in the region right so yeah. i'm gonna pivot a little bit from that um to some honestly scary news uh so the u.s charged four iranians in the last week with a plot to kidnap a iranian american journalist who lives in new york mm -hmm. so 
basically the plan was, so she's a critic of the Iranian regime. She's spoken out for women's rights in Iran and all these things. And the Justice Department released a statement that Iranian officials sought to lure the journalist to a third country where the abduction was planned. So apparently they were going to try and take it to Venezuela, I believe. Um, but that's that's wild and really scary that, that one Iran is trying to, look, we've seen them try to silence any dissent or criticism in their own country. Mm-hmm. But now they very blatantly trying to kidnap Americans to take them back to Iran. And given the last incidents like this, I believe it was in Switzerland or France, the, the person that was taken back to Iran was executed. Mm. So the level of belligerency and I guess not even, there's no concern almost from Iran of any repercussions of operating like this on U.S. soil right. Right. Is, is pretty scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, w- that had happened. Uh, when was that? Was that 2015? And they finally charged these four people? Or do you know I, when? I believe it was 2015. Because um, we have a Kufi primer that goes through a couple of those instances. So for yeah. our listeners who are interested, um, they've definitely been doing this a while. And um, yeah, it's definitely crazy. Yeah, it's yeah, it's wild. Um, and it's just there's been a lot of reports recently, even Facebook reporting that you know Iranian intelligence officials and Iranian networks are trying to law U.S. servicemen and women on social media to try and spy on them. So don't accept friend requests if you don't know people. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't do it, like for real. I know it sounds. We're all the story. Yeah, like if you don't know this person, just. Don't add them because you may be being spied on. Welcome to 2021. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, speaking so, yeah. of U.S. Israel, um, I wanted to bring up that that there were uh, kind of a couple, what seemed like isolated incidents, but I think police are tying them at this point um, of anti-Semitism in Ohio and racist graffiti as well that uh, police are investigating. And I thought it was interesting to see that. Um, Stars of David were being graffitied uh, along with the abbreviation ZOG, which I didn't know, but stands for Zionist Occupation Government. So it just shows once again how anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are so closely tied um, and almost inextricably linked, we could say. Um, And it's obviously an unfortunate situation, but um, kind of just hammers home what Kufi has been saying and why we think it's so important to fight not just on behalf of Jewish people in the U.S., but also defending Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship. No, for sure. I mean, that's it. It's scary when we see it right here in our own in our backyard, and it just emphasizes the importance of Kufi and what we do. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I'm going to close out with a positive story. Um, nice. So Israel's first... Uh, I believe she's deaf, member of the Knesset, member of their parliament, gave a speech in the last week in sign language. Um, I thought it was very cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it was just a very powerful moment. I, we have the video on our on Kufi social media. Um, so I thought it was a very cool moment. And, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. It was really sweet. So, okay, that is the news for now. We are going to go to a quick word from Kufi. 
KUFI On Campus works to provide Christian student leaders with the skills, resources, relationships, and biblical teachings they need in order to speak up on behalf of Israel and the Jewish people at this crucial time. As anti-Semitic activity on American college campuses has steadily increased, KUFI recognizes that Christian students have a responsibility to speak up on behalf of Israel and the Jewish people. To learn more about this program and how you can get involved, visit KUFIOnCampus.org. Hello and welcome back. Uh, so we're going to go on to our interview with our guest. We have Ambassador Michael Oren, former U.S., former Israeli ambassador to the United States, uh, former paratrooper in the IDF, former spokesman for the IDF, author, historian, there's a lot like I could go on about his bio for a long time um, and I've got to say Michael Oren is one of the most interesting and one of the most intelligent people I've ever spoke to I got the, the opportunity to speak to him when we were filming Never Again also and that he was able to make time to speak to us um, I was greatly appreciative of that yeah a huge privilege smart smart guy and just such a nice sweet-hearted person as well. And joining us now on the line is the former ambassador to the United States and renowned historian, Michael Oren. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be with all of you. So we'll launch straight into our questions. Um, Karina, take it away. I wasn't sure if I was telling our guests who you were, so I was, I was eager to jump into it. Um, so Ambassador, like you said, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I guess we should start with um, a little bit about you. Tell our listeners um, how you got into your current line of work and how'd you go from growing up in upstate New York to doing what you do now? <laughs> well, it's a long story to make it very short. Um, you know, I grew up in the period uh, after World War II. My father had actually landed on Normandy Beach uh, fought all the way through the war against the Nazis. Had had he and his brother had liberated a concentration camp. Uh, they took photographs wow. of the the horrors they saw there. I actually, carry those photographs in, in my in my cell phone with me wherever I go. Oh, the wow. heaps of bodies and the German soldiers laughing over the heaps of bodies. And um, I also grew up as the only Jewish kid in my neighborhood. I was pretty much beaten up for being a Jew all the time, and I had to learn to use my fists. Every time I'd come home all bloody, my father would open this album of the pictures of the, of the concentration camp and he'd say, you see those pictures? You see those pictures? That's why we need a strong state of Israel. It had a very profound impact on me. I grew up during the period also of the Six-Day War. Everyone remembers the great victory of the Six-Day War, but they don't remember that for three weeks before the victory, Israel was surrounded by enemies on all sides. And we were convinced we were going to witness the second Holocaust in a single generation. No one was going to do anything. Um, so that also had a profound impact. Um, uh, when I was 15 years old, I went to Washington, D.C. with a youth group, and I met Israel's ambassador to the United States at the time, and I got to shake his hand, and I said, you know, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, and uh, his name was Yitzhak Rabin, um, who later on became prime minister. I worked for him. I was his advisor uh, of blessed okay. memory. And, uh, and that was my goal. My goal was to move to Israel. Uh, I wanted to be a soldier. I wanted to be a paratrooper. And, uh, and I wanted to, to serve the state and to serve my people. And it, you know, it hasn't been the easiest uh, group with a couple of wars and my kids have all been in the army and, and in a few wars. Um, but it has just been uh, an extraordinary and very blessed experience. Blessed experience. I, I look out 
uh, I, I'm in Jaffa here and I look out over the, the Jaffa and Tel Aviv skyline. And, and, you know, this wasn't here when I moved here many decades ago. And uh, the feeling of, of, of gratitude and a fulfillment that I was I had whatever small part in building all that and making this country secure is, is a source of, of deep pride and fulfillment for me. Wow. So you touched on meeting you know, form of the late uh, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, and you said that influenced. I've read that you said that influenced your decision to move to Israel. Could you maybe tell us a little bit, a bit about that? You did touch on it. I don't think it influenced my decision to move to Israel. I think it it, it, okay. it determined my uh, my career path. <laughs> and ah, okay. I know for a 15-year-old kid to, to, to determine exactly what he wanted to do when he grew up. Uh, but but no kidding. I, I went off to study Middle Eastern history uh, to, be, to learn how to write, to learn how to interview on TV, because uh, I think those were the tools that an ambassador needed. Um, and I knew American history very well. Um, and, uh, and even when I used to go, when I was the age of, of you young people, I used to go to interviews. People say, okay, what's your career goal? I used to say, I want to be Israel's ambassador to the United States. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> in my 20s. In my 20s. So yeah, I knew what I wanted to be. The, my problem was after I finished being ambassador, I said, then what do you do? You know, it's like an Olympic athlete that wins a gold medal at 25. Okay, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And um, no, it was interesting. I went into Israeli politics. but uh, And I was a writer. And I'm still a writer. Uh, and I'm still involved on the national level and on the international level. But uh, it was, really was a dream. My decision to move to Israel came from a very deep spiritual place. You might say something interesting. You know, um, if you, you, know, you visit the Cornerstone Church and, and everyone talks about their personal relationship with God. Yeah. And they talk about their faith. And it, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, cultural aspect of the United States as well. Um, I can't say I've heard every president going back. Uh, to George Bush, talk about his personal relationship with God. In Israeli mm -hmm. politics, you don't talk about that. It's interesting. You don't talk about faith. You don't talk, even the most religious person in the world in Israel doesn't talk about faith, doesn't talk about relations with God. There's all sorts of deep historical reasons for that. But I, I'm an exception. I'm the Israeli public figure who will talk about my relationship with God, will talk about my faith. And I've had a, I, I believe, a deep personal connection ever since I was a little boy. And um, it has guided me and given me strength through hard times. Um, and it, uh, I've been able to pass it on to my children. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously your faith has influenced, um, the decisions that you've made, your career path. Um, but we've heard you talk, I believe at Kufai Summit before, and, um, you know, I read, read a little bit before starting the interview, you know, that you've talked about how you experienced anti-Semitism as a young man, and you even touched on that earlier. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about that and, how does that impact your perspective on obviously anti-Semitism rising in the U.S. today? What's interesting, um, you know, I, I said I grew up in a non-Jewish neighborhood, in a working class neighborhood, and it was very different than the experiences of many uh, young Jewish people. And if they came from they, either they grew up in neighborhoods that were overwhelmingly Jewish or they, they were more yeah. affluent uh, and they never experienced anti-Semitism. I, I was strange, you know, meeting these people and saying, wait a minute, you've never experienced anti-Semitism. Um, so I, I can honestly say, I don't know if my experience was very emblematic or typical uh, of, of an American Jew of my generation. But today, if you ask uh, American Jews, have you experienced anti-Semitism? And the overwhelming majority will say yes. And so my experience is no longer, I mean, tragically, my experience is no longer rather unique and has become very, very pervasive. And I think there's a tremendous amount of, I think, growing fear among American Jews um, and, and anti-Semitism. Uh, either is being embraced by by groups on the extreme right up, but also on, on the extreme left on campuses uh, and in the media. And anti-Semitism is also being 
downgraded as a hatred because now racism is 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 perceived as being defined as a sort of a a reflection of power and uh, affluence. And if Jews are powerful and affluent, then, then hatred of Jews can't be on the level of hatred of people of color. It's a different type. It's a lesser hatred. Um, mm. And this is for the oldest hatred in, in, in history and a hatred that cost the lives of a third of my people uh, within my parents' generation. So it, it's, it's not ancient history. So these are all very disturbing um, developments in the United States. Uh, and frankly, I, I, right now, I don't see it get any better. Oh. Uh, that's that's interesting. I mean, especially the insight in in terms of how anti-Semitism is viewed today. Now, you touched on campuses. So, 2010, you spoke at Berkeley and what has become quite infamous now. Um, mm -hmm. Let's loosely call them protests. I mean, <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about that and also your thoughts on the campus climate today? Because I think. As far as I can remember, that was one of the first really major incidents of just this very direct hatred towards Israel and the Jewish people at a campus. And there was no hiding it at that point. And I mean, you were on the front line. It was directed at you. You know, I, I had gone all my education is from American universities and then I taught at American universities and my experience certainly studying. Uh, was very, very positive. We didn't have a lot of, I had Palestinian friends, I had Syrian friends. We kept our politics out of it. And for the most part, politics were kept out of the classroom. America changed, America changed profoundly uh, over the course of many years. Um, you know, that incident actually was at Irvine. Uh, UC Irvine, um, you know, was where the Muslim student organization uh, like physically violently tried to stop me from speaking um, was very shocking back then. It was, it was unique. No one had ever encountered anything like it. Today, there's nothing unique about it. United yeah. today, I don't think an Israeli ambassador would be uh, would be invited uh, to campus. And I'm not going to mention the name of a very, very leading university that had invited me to be a visiting professor in 2022. Um, and then several weeks later, rescinded its offer. And it was clear wow. why they had rescinded the offer, uh, that there had, been, there had been opposition from the faculty. So even the ability for an Israeli a defender of Israel, certainly a public defender of Israel, to appear on campus today uh, cannot be taken for granted. Um, back then, they were trying to, you know, to to stop my voice, to silence my voice. Uh, today, I don't even know if I'd have the opportunity uh, to at least give my voice a, a try on campus. I don't. I think I'd be denied wow. that. Well, well, yeah, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of reasons why the campus climate has changed. And even now we're seeing um, different developing trends as far as uh, sentiments towards Israel and the Jewish people um, for a variety of reasons. There's changing administrations in Israel, changing administrations here in the U.S. So um, on that note, what do you see um, some trends coming down the pike or uh, positive or negative for the U.S.-Israel relationship from your vantage point? What, what kinds of things do you see in our future? Well, I'm, obviously, I, you don't have a question. I would say, but... say I'm an historian and I have enough trouble predicting the past. But, <laughs> uh, but here's, here's, here's what I do see. Here's what I do see. Okay. We have, uh, we have the Biden administration now. And I, you know, I have the distinction of having worked both with the, with the president as well as the secretary of state and his national security advisor. Um, very familiar to me. And I know that they are committed to the Israeli-American uh, alliance. They're committed to Israel security. But we have significant policy differences. We have a policy difference on the Palestinian issue, which is pretty much, pretty much moot right now because the Palestinians don't even have a leadership. 
but on the Iranian issue, that is the most significant. And um, the administration has expressed its commitment to renewing the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. And we view, and I view, that agreement as a strategic, if not existential, danger uh, to the state of Israel. And it's an agreement that will pitch the entire region uh, en route to war. And of that, I'm absolutely certain. I don't have, you don't have to be a, a prophet to know that. I can, you know, if I had time, I'll tell you exactly why this leads to a regional war. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, in the United States, the, the political climate has become such so polarized that it's, there's not even a debate about what's in the agreement anymore. It's all about, you know, if you're in favor of the agreement, you're, you're a Democrat, you're against the agreement, you're a Republican. Or, um, and it's, it's very, very, very dangerous and very tragic for the state of Israel. Um, mm-hmm. What is also coming down the pike, and I, this is, I, I, I came back from Washington in the beginning of 2014, and my message to Israeli leaders was, um, you know, we're pretty much on, the, on our own. America's tired. America's after two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, after economic crises. People aren't interested in being the uh, Americans are not interested in being the policemen of the world anymore. And Americans are not going to support the projection of major American military power around the world. Remember, you know, within your lifetimes, the United States sent an army of 600,000 soldiers to the Middle East. Imagine that. And it, it, it's not going to happen anymore. <laughs> it's just not. And I don't care who's president. I don't care who's president. Right. Um, the American people will not support it. Now, that is a very significant um, development for the state of Israel, not only for Israel, for American allies around the world. I talk to people in Japan and Germany and South Korea. They feel exactly the same way. Uh, and believe me, China is going to project power and Russia is going to project power. But America, probably not. And for those of us who have... Uh, those countries that have depended on the projection and the willingness and commitment to project power on the world, that's a big change. That's a sea change. So I came home in 2014. I said, you know, folks, we're pretty much on our own. Um, you know, it's not the first time we were on our own in the Six-Day War, uh, but we have to, we have to, America will remain our, our ultimate ally. Um, it will be the, it shares our democratic values. It, it aids us militarily, it aids us diplomatically. But, you know, I was a, a paratrooper in the Battle of Beirut in 1982, and we were all pretty certain that if, um, you know, if the Israeli army got into, a, into a, a bind, that President Reagan would come and send the Marines. And he did. Mm-hmm. But the Marines aren't coming anymore. <laughs> they aren't. And we have to internalize that. It's a different world. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting. Kufai did some polling uh, a few months ago, and that was one thing across the board. You know, Americans are not in favor of sending U.S. troops to the Middle East in any capacity. So that's I don't know if they're Cosmo, I don't know if they're willing to send military troops anywhere to Taiwan, yeah. to Ukraine. I mean, really. Um, no. I'm looking at what's happening in Haiti this week. There was a request for American troops, and guess what? Yeah. No, that, that's, that's it's interesting that you were seeing that in 2014. I mean, that's um, it's it's really interesting. So when you were Israel's ambassador to the United States, you were uniquely placed, um, and also you you did a lot of things which you know, personally speaking, I thought were incredible. Um, A few years ago, I attended a Ramadan iftar at the uh, embassy, the ambassador's Yeah, and I was told that that was, you had started that and that was one of your requests to Ambassador Derma when he took over to make sure that he continues that. So, you know, you, you really did some incredible things as the representative of the state of Israel. So pivoting slightly, from the perspective that you had, that you still have, 
Um, what, what can Christians in America do to get involved in the fight, one against anti-Semitism and standing up for Israel in America, especially given how we saw things pan out in the last conflict? I mean, there's so much you can do. It, it's to rally for Israel, whether on campuses or on the streets, um, rally against anti-Semitism, uh, make your voices heard. Um, come here. Come here. You know, I, I don't know if either of you have been on Passages. It's a wonderful program. Uh, I've been identified with it from the from the beginning and a long, strong supporter. I know that Ambassador Dermer was a strong supporter as well. Um, getting young Christians to come here and see the reality of Israel, because that's going to be very different than what they're hearing on their campuses. Very different. Um, matter, of fact, matter of fact, I can't think of probably anything more significant that you can do other than to come here. Hmm. That's great. We yeah, we have various groups that um, are dying to get back in the land, I think, where as soon as those um, you know, jump through every hoop, we're going to be there. Yeah. Um, so we've, we're kind of all over the place. This is um, the last question that we have time for. Um, but we did want to get your thoughts on a lot of different things. So that's why the questions are everywhere. Um, but I read that you served as an officer in the IDF spokesman office during the 2008-2009 Gaza War. Is that accurate? That is accurate, yes. So we wanted to hear about some of your major takeaways from that experience and then see if you could tie that into the recent conflict that we saw um, Israel have with Hamas in May, or I should say Hamas have with Israel, but see if there were any correlations. I was, I, was, I was getting ready to retire from my combat role in the Army, and they said, oh, we want to sign on 10 more years as a, uh, as a spokesperson, because I've been doing a lot of TV and a lot of media. Okay, let's do that. I figured it'd be my cushy uh, desk job. I got to see more combat as a, sp a spokesman than I did as a paratrooper. It was crazy. Wow. Well, you got to get out there. People shooting at you. And um, <laughs> amazing. I never shot back, but people were certainly shooting at me. And um, I learned very important and cruel lessons. Cruel lessons. Mm. Um, first of all, I learned that the major battlefield is not Gaza. The major battlefield is not Lebanon. The major battlefield is this screen. The major battlefield is, is the way this screen impacts public opinion in the world. And that's what Hamas wants. It's what Hezbollah wants. They shoot rockets at us. They know they can't really get much damage because we have Iron Dome. But we shoot back at them and they don't invest a dime in civil defense. Right. They want they want us to kill their people so that we will look bad on this screen. And that will impact uh, policies around the world, get us condemned in the Security Council, get us condemned in the International Criminal Court, get us sanctioned, and it will threaten our right to, do, to defend ourselves and ultimately in our right to exist. That's how they'll destroy us. They know they can't destroy us with the rockets. They can destroy us with a screen. And I saw it happen. I saw how, I'll just give you one story from that war. Okay, and that was one night, two o'clock in the morning. They woke us up and they said uh, there's a report uh, on the Palestinian news that uh, an Israeli mortar shell had hit a UN school, and that a number of student, a number of children had died. You know, prepared for a media onslaught. Within minutes, that Palestinian source moved to the French press. The French press said that there were 21 children killed. Okay, from the French press, it went to the AP. And then to the UPI, and uh, by then it had become 51 children killed. Israel had killed 51 people. Already were being condemned throughout the world. They were convening the security mm -hmm. council to condemn. It took three weeks to investigate what really happened. What really happened was the mortar shell did not hit the school. It hit outside the school. It killed 12 people. Ten of them were Hamas uh, terrorists. Two were civilians but adults. No, Not a single child was killed. Wow. wow. But the damage by spreading the libel 
Hamas inflicted strategic damage against the state of Israel, strategic damage. And uh, I see it now happening in war after war after war. I was a spokesman in the last war as well. And it gets worse and worse. It gets worse and worse. Yeah. In the last war, they kept on publishing the number of Palestinian kills, like 230 people killed. Mm-hmm. But nobody asked of the 230 how many were terrorists. Nobody asked of the 230 how many were killed by Palestinian rockets that fell short. It was a huge number, by the way, huge number. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the main war, and that is what Hamas is aiming at. My problem is to get Israelis to understand it. It's very difficult. Well, wow. no, it's especially in the last conflict, we saw it play out in such a biased way. I, I know we said that was the last question, but I would just like to get your take on this. Yeah. Do you think there's something that Israel could be doing better in in fighting back that narrative that places Israel as this evil aggressor and Hamas as you know these plucky freedom fighters? I mean, it, it, when you zoom out, it's absurd. But do you think there's something Israel could be doing better? Yes, of course. And that is, we, we, we are living in a post-fact world. People aren't listening interesting in facts anymore. They're interested in feelings. Right. And our, our public diplomacy has been based on facts. You know, Hamas is committing a double uh, war crime. It's firing at our civilians and hiding behind its own civilians. Okay, that's our, we've been using that same line for, for you know, about 15 years now. People don't hear it anymore. People don't react to it anymore. They, walk, they react to an image. They react to a feeling. Okay, so next time we have a war, and probably we will, uh, instead of fighting with facts, let's bring over a John Oliver or a Bill Maher to Israel. Let them sit in Sterot for a day under fire mm-hmm. and then say that it's not serious, you know, in the case of John Oliver, um, yeah. Trevor Noah. Get, get these people to come here. Think out of the box. And we don't. We don't. I know sometimes I, I think that we don't even know there is a box. And uh, it's a source of frustration, but I'm working on it. <laughs> That's excellent. No, yeah. I appreciate that. That's, that's a great insight. Well, I, I want to thank all my friends at Kufi. I've had a very life. I've been associated with Kufi for what, 20 years now with Pastor Hagee and Diane. And I wish them best. And I've, I've been to you know, San Antonio several times. I'd love to come back. Um, I wish you all the best. And God bless you for everything you do for the state of Israel and the Jewish people. Thank you so much. We truly do appreciate that. And, and thank you for taking some time to speak to us. It's, we know you're very busy, so we really do appreciate it. Be well. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Wow. Uh, such a privilege and um, so many insights that can be gleaned from Ambassador Oren. I mean, if we had more time, I'm sure he could have just delved so much deeper into every topic and every question that we asked him. But um, I'm sure that our listeners learned a lot. I know I did. So right now we are going to head to a short message from Kufi um, about a new opportunity for Kufi members. To make a difference, we first need the facts. Kufi's in-depth primers provide our members with the information they need to be knowledgeable defenders of Israel. Get informed about the Iranian regime and its deadly proxies, Hezbollah and Hamas. Discover more about Israel's biblical claim to their ancient land and to the city of Jerusalem. And learn how you can help fight the alarming rise of anti-Semitism in the United States and around the world. These free digital primers are an invaluable resource that will help you make the case for Israel knowledgeably with your friends, family, and coworkers. 
Visit www.kufi.org slash issue dash analysis to start learning today. And welcome back. Um, all right, so we have our devotional. I don't know what to call this. It's devotional biblical inspiration. I like to change it up every like few weeks. I like to call it biblical encouragement. Biblical encouragement. All right, let's go with that. I've got a B. Biblical encouragement. Um, and this week we have our biblical encouragement from a new member of the KUFI team, a new field coordinator who has a pretty incredible testimony himself. We may even have him on a gu- as a guest sometime. It's a good idea. I'll make a note of that. Um, and if I forget, I can just listen to the podcast again. So there we go. Um, anyway, digressing. So we have a new member of the KUFI team, our field coordinator, Kirby Calhoun. So, Kirby, take it away with some biblical encouragement. Hey, everybody. My name's Kirby Calhoun, and I'm one of the new field coordinators with Christians United for Israel. I want to take a moment real quick and thank Kasim and Karina for this opportunity to share some biblical encouragement with you guys. So today I'm going to talk about something that the Lord has placed close to my heart. And as an American and as a Christian, I believe that God is who he said that he is. I believe his word is true. I believe that the Jewish people are who God said they are. And I believe that he gave them a land. There are so many scriptures that I could quote and find that would just highlight all of these things and express why I believe them. But the thing I want to focus on today is what I saw in May when Hamas shot thousands of rockets into Israel. There was tons of international media coverage, national media coverage. But the one thing that I did not see was the major outcry from Christians in America. And that is the focal point of this encouraging message. Because we have the liberty to sit here in safety and watch our ally come under attack where these terrorists are lobbing rockets and shooting rockets into their civilian populations, targeting schools and centers of worship. These are facts. This is happening. Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets aimed at Israel right now. That's a fact. Israel lives their daily life, their daily existence, smaller than the state of New Jersey, knowing that there are those rockets pointed at them. That's a hard pill to swallow. And I don't know that as Americans, we conceptualize that properly all the time. But, you know, when I read a scripture like Zechariah 2, verse 8, And it tells us, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. If the Jewish people are the apple of God's eye, and we as Christians believe that God's word is true, and we watch an organization shoot rockets into the apple of his eye, we should not be indifferent to that. And indifference is what I saw during that 10 or 11 day conflict. American Christian indifference. And I believe that God's word is true. I believe where in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, it says, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. If it pleased the Lord to make the Jewish people his people, the Lord cannot be happy that his church stands by and watches 
a terrorist organization shoot rockets at them. So the point that I want to bring to the table here is to encourage you as an American citizen to use your American rights, your God-given rights that our Constitution so clearly lays out to express your beliefs, to call and write your congressmen and your senators the next time somebody shoots a rocket into Israel so that your congressmen and your senators will step up and they will press forward with legislation and means to support Israel as they defend themselves against terrorism. That's what we can do in America. You can write your congressmen and senators. You can give them a call. You can do something that actually impacts our ally in the Middle East, the only democracy in the Middle East, the only place where there's religious freedom and women have equal rights, and many, many others where they mirror what America's society is like. They've embraced freedom and liberty. It's what America was founded on, and we should embrace any country that's willing to put liberty and freedom at the forefront of their existence, just like Israel has. I believe when Paul says we were given the spiritual gifts by the Jewish people and we owe it to them we owe it to them materially to respond. To me that means using my rights as an American citizen. When I vote, Israel is one of the things that I vote on. It is one of the policies that mean the most to me because it means the most to God. So the next time you see Israel in a conflict, or a Jewish person in need, view them as if they're the apple of God's eye and help them in any capacity that you can because it's the right thing to do and it's what God wants us to do. Thank you very much for listening. God bless you, God bless America, and God bless Israel. Well, um, that was great. I, I mean, Kirby and, and, and me don't know each other too well yet, but I definitely am so glad that he's on the team just sharing his wisdom and um, such an encouraging word for our listeners as well. No, definitely. And, and with his the experiences he's had in life, I mean, it just adds an extra depth to, to all of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think that's us. That's us done for the week. Send us a good review on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Or a bad one, and then we'll probably be so a little less self-congratulatory. <laughs> like, oh, actually, episodes weren't that good. No, I have full confidence in this episode, and we had a great guest, a great devotional, and I have a great co-host. There we go. Oh, that was so nice. Well, it was your birthday recently, so. <laughs> okay. You guys know the drill. Like us, share us, send us a good review. Uh, if you have any questions or feedback, contact Kufi. I guess, I don't know. That's the first I've never said that before, so <laughs> it felt right. Like <laughs> And yeah, we will see you guys or you'll hear us in in two weeks time. Alright, sounds good. Thanks, Kazim. Alright.